This podcast is brought to you by Lannan Foundation and is available at podcast.lannan.org. Good evening. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. My name is Janine Jackson. I am the program director. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding? Are you kidding me? Thank you. Um, I am the program director at FAIR, the Media Watch Group, and the producer and host of Counterspin. That's kind of nuts. Welcome to this evening's conversation. I want to thank the Lannan Foundation very much for inviting me to beautiful Santa Fe to be part of the conversation on this important new book, Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine. So I saw a headline recently, maybe you did too. In shift, U.S. says Israeli settlements in West Bank do not violate international law. The BBC, that was the New York Times, the BBC did it a little tighter. U.S. says Israeli settlements are no longer illegal. So you read that, and just, you know, at the level of language, you think, well, that's odd. Um, Does the U.S. have that power? And then there's the implication that the U.S. until now thought that the settlements did violate international law, but that didn't affect U.S. financial and political support for Israel. So what's the meaning of the shift? You know, if you don't care about the law, why invoke it? It sounds illogical, but it is in fact reflective of the malleability of international law, the opportunistic employment or invocation of it, and its essentially political nature. It's imbrication with politics, imbrication being one of many new words I learned from this book. Um, Involvement, it kind of means the relationship of shingles, you know, the, the integrated relationship of international law and politics. When you read Justice for Some, you get the context to help you make sense of those headlines. You, you won't be happy about it, but you will understand them. They will make sense along with the story itself. We think of the law as something that exists somewhere, and you, you dust it off or you reveal it and apply it, when in fact law is something created and forged for purpose, Right? In the era of Trump, it's become almost a Hail Mary. You know, save us lawyers. You know, surely this can't be legal. You know, and we want there to be um, a system that is, that is more powerful than might makes right. You know, but it's critically important that we not conflate law with justice. Not in this country, where I was once three-fifths of a person, you know, legally, or internationally. And those legal systems are different, uh, domestic and international, in a way that we'll, we'll probably talk about. With regard to Palestinians, this book takes us from what you might call the liberal position, if only Israel would abide by international law, if only they would honor the law. It takes us to an ultimately more hopeful recognition of the limits of law, 
of what it can and cannot do by itself so that we can see the role that law can play and how it fits with what else needs to happen to make the liberation of the Palestinian people, their enjoyment of full human rights, their capacity to create their own future a reality. I want to read just one piece from the book. Structural transformation is the purview of the strong. On its own, the law can neither undo the conditions that engendered the violation, nor recalibrate the balance of power that sustains it. It can be used only as a tool in support of a political strategy that aims for this transformation. Nora Arakat is a human rights attorney and assistant professor at Rutgers in the Department of Africana Studies and the Program in Criminal Justice. She's a co-founding editor of the online magazine Jadalaya. She's been legal counsel in the House of Representatives, an organizer with the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation, and legal advocacy coordinator for the Badil Center for Refugee and Residency Rights, among many other things. I concur with my friend Gunnar Olson, who wrote in Jacobin in his review of this book, that the book is a vital political intervention in our conversation about Israel and Palestine, as well as a compelling history of the last century seen through a critical legal lens. It's my pleasure to welcome the author of Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, Nora Erika. Thank you, Janine. Thank you to the Lannan Foundation. Thank you to all of you. Um, thank you to the Tewa people who I, we haven't necessarily asked their permission, but in just being here, I'm thanking you for allowing us um, to be here. Um, so this is the end of what has been almost a year-long journey of sharing this book uh, across the globe, including in Palestine, where it was incredibly difficult to share it with my people who are enduring day in and day out the violence of settler colonialism um, and their erasure and victimization at the hands of imperial powers who blame them for their own death and suffering. And now for it to come to an end here in the Southwest among uh, people I consider compas, comrades, and especially as uh, tomorrow we travel to Albuquerque to continue the discussion uh, with the Red Nation in thinking about the question of Palestine and the question of liberation as an interconnected struggle against settler colonialism globally, against imperialism, and for our common future. That is what is at stake. And I, and I say that because I begin my own story as an activist. In fact, the story of the book begins in my activism when I was a student at UC Berkeley, an undergraduate student, and Ariel Sharon was elected into office for the second time on February 6th, 2001, after he had been ousted from his, his political career was ruined after the Kahan Commission exposed his role in the massacre of Sabra and Shatila. Um, refugee camps in Lebanon in 1982, and yet here he was resurrected. He had come back to life as a right-wing um, advocate 
for settlements and for Israeli dominance. And in that context, in that context, he comes on, he marches on to Haram al-Sharif, also known as the Temple Mount, Al-Aqsa Mosque, in Jerusalem on a Friday with a thousand soldiers with him. And in response, Palestinian worshippers begin to throw stones at the troops who are in a holy space on a Friday, on the most holy day uh, for Muslims, and they respond with live fire, killing five Palestinians. One of them was my neighbor at the time when I was studying at Hebrew University and living in Abu Dis, my ancestral home. And I was forced to leave uh, Palestine because Everyone was concerned about my safety, and I could leave because I had a blue passport, unlike my Palestinian cousins and family and friends who couldn't leave. And that guilt stayed with me, that survivor's guilt that I was able to leave stayed with me as I came back to UC Berkeley and was witnessing now what's known as the Second Palestinian Intifada from afar. In that context, we as the Students for Justice in Palestine, on the day that Ariel Sharon was elected into office for the second time, on February 6, 2001, unfurled a banner in the middle of Seder Gate that read, divest from apartheid Israel. Before, there was a BDS movement that was announced in 2005. Before we even knew what that meant exactly, we were a bunch of students who knew that the problem was we needed to turn the tables and rather than have to explain why Palestinians were freedom fighters and not terrorists, force Israel and its supporters to explain why Israel was not committing violence and terrorism against Palestinian civilians. And so began the divestment movement. And for years, for years, we took over buildings at Wheeler Hall, we blocked, we ended it, Netanyahu was supposed to speak at Berkeley. We made sure he didn't speak by blocking all the gates of the auditorium. We blocked freeways and stopped traffic in order to urge the city of Berkeley to support the students in our divestment efforts. And nothing seemed to stop the killing on the ground during this intifada, where in the course of five years, some 3,000 Palestinians were killed with absolute impunity. And so, as a young 21-year-old who is very naive and equally arrogant, I thought, okay, I got it. I'm gonna go to law school because I will use the law better than anybody else has ever used the law and I will make the best arguments, the most cogent, logical arguments and a, a, a judge, a fair arbiter, is going to hear that argument and agree with us, and Palestine is going to be free. Yeah, so it didn't quite work out like that. I end up going uh, to Berkeley Law School, and it was horrifying, absolutely horrifying, to walk into a law school where I thought I was going to meet a number of other people dedicated to freedom and justice and using the law for our emancipation and instead discovering that the most talented, vigorous, dedicated, hardworking young people there were interested in getting really rich really fast. And so rather than, you know, it took a lot. It took a lot to even survive that. 
I was the first generation lawyer in my family, so nobody kind of gave me the 101. Hey, it's not going to be it's it's not going to be great. It's actually going to be really hard and not what you expect and everyone's going to speak in a language that you don't understand. And ethics and justice don't matter there as much as legal reasoning. Somehow, somehow I survived and I remained dedicated that I was going to use the law in order to advance the Palestinian cause for freedom. And so, I went to Washington, got a fellowship to create my own job because in 2005 there was no such thing as Palestinian human rights. You can do Palestine, you can work on Palestine if you wanted to work on counterterrorism within a national security framework, and you can work on Palestine if you wanted to organize dialogue groups for conflict resolution. But you could not work on Palestine to achieve Palestinian human rights and to append a very oppressive power imbalance. And so I had to create my own job. And to do that, I went to work with the U.S. campaign to end the Israeli occupation, now the U.S. campaign for Palestinian equal rights. And 50% of my time, I was seeding BDS campaigns across the country, at churches, on university campuses, when people thought it was a joke. So nobody was coming after me then. But as with all of our struggles, what is once deemed laughable becomes a threat because that's what people's movement does. That's what our movement does. And so what was once on the fringe of activism is now considered by Netanyahu the second most significant threat to Israel after a nuclear-capable Iran. Is now has legislation in 41 out of 50 states that have either passed anti-BDS legislation or considering it, where it's being considered, a bill is being considered in the Senate that would make any BDS activity punishable by a quarter of a million dollars of, of civil fines. But when I started, nobody was taking us seriously. So I was happily uh, moving across the country and doing that. And the other 50% of my time, I was working with other attorneys so that we can, we can sue Israeli officials for war crimes and crimes against humanity in U.S. federal courts. And in 2005, we finally got that opportunity and we were able to serve Avi Dichter in the Southern District of New York and Moshe Alon in the DC District Court. And this was it. This was the moment to vindicate this law school, awful law school experience, to vindicate the struggle. This, this, we were finally going to sue them. Um, Avi Dichter was responsible for the raising of 5,000 homes in Rafah in the south of Gaza in 2005. And Moshe Alon was responsible for the bombing of a UNIFIL compound, um, sheltering civilians in 1996 in Qana in the south of Lebanon, during what Israel calls Operation Grapes of Wrath. So here, here we were, this moment of truth, and within less than a year, both suits were dismissed on grounds of non-justiciability, which meant that the survivors never even got to share their stories. The merits of the cases were never heard. Instead, one case was dismissed because it violated foreign sovereign immunity of Israel because the lawsuit against an Israeli general is tantamount to a lawsuit against Israel itself, and you can't sue in a foreign state in U.S. federal courts, except, of course, if they are designated as a state sponsor of terror by the State Department. Israel's not on that list. And another reason was the political question doctrine, which bars a case if it's better suited for another branch of government like the judiciary, excuse me, like the legislative branch or the executive branch. And like that, 
like that. This dream, this hard work, all of it was thrown out the window and I would not give up. And with the mentorship of an attorney, um, continued to do strategic litigation research. And we decided that we just needed to find a more favorable court. So we had to go westward. Let's go to the Ninth Circuit, right? And do research there of which, which panel of judges would be more uh, favorable to our claims. And something happened. I found something when I started that research, which is that if I controlled for the identity of the defendants and the identity of the claimants, that the same arguments establishing non-justiciability did not bar lawsuits against human rights violators and war criminals from the Philippines, from Guatemala, from Paraguay, from West Papua, from Serbia, even from China. And yet here you have this case. And as I was looking at that and I controlled for these variables of identity, I produced my first law review article, my first academic article demonstrating bias in U.S. federal courtrooms when Arabs bring claims, bring claims against Israeli defendants. And I kept going, though. I was, I was, so here you see the seed of inquiry was planted for me. What is this relationship between law and politics that is, uh, that is impeding access to justice in, 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 in courtrooms, what is that relationship? And I was working on that in an academic setting, but continuing as a human rights attorney, and so continued. I went to work on the Hill. I, I traveled to Gaza in 2009 with a delegation of lawyers to study and document the, the atrocities committed during the first large-scale offensive against the, the Palestinians and trapped within Gaza in 2008 and 2009. I continued, I went to work at, at the UN on behalf of a Palestinian refugee rights organization, and so on and so forth. And at every juncture, at every juncture, I found the same impediment to legal accountability, which was this, this big question of politics. And that question of what is the relationship between law and politics became so, burn, so burning and overwhelming for me that it sent me back to school. And I wanted to answer both that question, what is the relationship between law and politics, and what does it tell us about the Palestinian struggle for freedom? And the culmination of that journey is this book, Justice for Some, Law and the Question of Palestine, that I've come to share with you today. So let me tell you how I answer that question in brief. You got a little taste of it from Janine. I answered the first question, that, the, that law is politics. Law is politics. And in order to be served on behalf of an emancipatory purpose, to leverage its emancipatory potential, it must be used in the sophisticated service of a political movement. This is the cornerstone of what we describe as movement lawyering. So on the one hand, you have in this debate about the relationship between law and politics. On the one hand, you have an argument that says law is politics, full stop. Therefore, it is, it's just a veneer for power. It's what Richard Falk describes as a club with which to hammer uh, weaker parties under the veneer of legitimacy. 
right? And that makes sense to most people, especially, you know, given my experience, given the state of, of the world affairs, given impunity for some, and yet um, accountability for the weak and others. Think about the International Criminal Court, the fact that since its establishment in 2002, all cases minus one against the Serbian official have been against African heads of state. I mean, there's something to that, that maybe the law is just a fiction. On the other hand, there's the opposite of that argument, when, and that's the argument that, no, the law is inherently, there is something noble in it. It is lofty. It is above our manipulation and, and our political tampering. And if we just use it, then it, if we elevate it, then it will establish and unveil some sort of justice and freedom for us all, right? But again, my experience shows that that's absolutely not the case. And so does, you know, the experience of the world. Where are we in the middle of this debate between the positivists and the realists? I find myself not in the middle, but much closer to the realists, a bit to the right of them. It might be the only time I'm to the right of anybody, but a bit to the right of them on this spectrum. Um, and the reason I don't accept their fatalist argument that the law is purely power is because our own history, Palestinian history proves otherwise. It could not be true that law is merely power if we know that the Palestinian Liberation Organization in 1974 passed UN General Assembly Resolutions 3236 and 3237 overcoming their juridical erasure as a political community and as a people with the right to self-determination. It would not be true. The fact that the PLO in 1975 passed Resolution 3379 declaring Zionism as a form of racism and racial discrimination. It would not be true because we know that the PLO together with the non-aligned movement and the G77 between 1974 and 1977 created new laws of warfare that legitimized guerrilla combat and elevated the role of guerrilla fighters from criminal terrorists to soldiers. So it could not be true that the law is merely power because here you have a stateless people facing off with the only nuclear power in the Middle East, the 11th largest military power in the world. The U.S. is self-proclaimed most unique ally. And yet PLO was advancing law in its favor. And so back to where I then land. And how do we explain that? And the way that I explain that is that the law is politics. And during this period, the PLO was part of a global uprising, an anti-imperialist upheaval against a, an oppressive world order and work together with what constituted an automatic majority at the General Assembly in order to create new law where none existed. Law is politics and in order to leverage its emancipatory purpose, it must be used in the service, sophisticated service of a political movement. And so, Probably for some this would be really upsetting, but I analogize the law to the sail of a boat. A boat is not going to move without a sail, but a, a sail itself is not enough. You need wind. The sail is the law, and the wind is the political movement. 
that blows it in a particular direction. So I suggest that we erect for, for, for um, progressive causes, on behalf of progressive causes, that we erect the sail of the boat when useful, we draw it when harmful, and we create an absolutely new sail when possible. So that answers the first part of the question, the relationship between law and politics. What does it tell us about the Palestinian um, struggle for freedom? What does it tell us about this struggle? I start this story to answer this question. I start this story in 1917 at the time that the Balfour Declaration is issued. And that's significant for a number of reasons, not least because most of the time, even allies, Palestinian allies, will begin the story from 1967, which is the beginning of Israel's occupation of the West Bank, including East Jerusalem and the Gaza Strip, but which has come to be shown, and Janine is, is, is already raising this issue, and I'm happy to discuss it more, as a false partition that never existed. Israel's not declared its borders. As a settler colony, it is continuously expanding those borders and expanding its territorial takings. In a better case scenario, allies will begin the story in 1948, which marks the moment of Palestinian dispossession and forced removal and exile. But even then, what we do is almost discuss the story as if it comes out of nowhere, and we erase a colonial context that actually creates something called, in the words of Edward Said, the question of Palestine. And that was three decades of colonial intervention by the British in their role as a mandatory power on behalf of the League of Nations that was entrusted to shepherd former colonies to independence. And that story begins in 1917 when the Balfour Declaration is issued. And the Balfour Declaration is very short, something like, I think, 67 words. And, it, and, and it, the most significant part, besides the fact that it designates Palestine as a site of uh, Jewish settlements to establish a Jewish homeland, uh, excuse me, not a Jewish home, a Jewish national home, and that's distinct from a homeland because it's not the state, but a cultural Mecca and a national home, and we can discuss that more. But aside from that, they refer to 90% of the native population of Palestine in 1917 as non-Jewish in their negative. And they guarantee their civil and religious rights, but not their political one. And I describe this, this language, as constituting the colonial erasure of a Palestinian people. It is their juridical erasure in the language of law. And it is one that is hardly unique to Palestinians. It is the same juridical erasure that's used against almost all indigenous people as they come under um, the sovereignty of a settler and their settler law. Now, just because the British said so, at that point, it's just colonial hubris. But in 1922, the League of Nations adopts this language, the, palace, uh, the Balfour Declaration adopts that language verbatim into the preambular text of what becomes the mandate for Palestine. And so what was just colonial hubris in 1917, in 1922 becomes international law and policy. And it is an obligation of all states now to establish a Jewish national home at the expense of Palestinian self-determination as a matter of international law and policy.
for that for those intervening decades between 1917 and the present Palestinians have been struggling to overcome that juridical erasure they and they come the closest to it in in the interwar years as they're struggling against it they use legal logic in order to counter the british interpretation article 22 is contravening your obligation to the native population to entrust with them their preferences and to elevate their preferences article 20 says that you can't take on an obligation that contravenes a previous obligations as a mandatory power and in that discussion British as as a mandatory power was responding that might be true but because of the exceptional state of this mandate what was once a transgression now becomes compliance with the law and so legal language in this in this in this uh what i call a sui generis framework what in law means unlike anything other has no significant power so a little bit on being sui generis if you are unlike anything other in law that means that as a fact pattern there's no other fact pattern like it which means you can't apply a precedent nor apply an analogy to determine what appropriate law should be okay instead and this is what i argue and this is getting into the discussion of what is um what is the state of exception is it a site of lawlessness or lawfulness I argue that the proclamation of a sui generis framework creates a lawmaking authority for the sovereign to create new law that suits their interests where other law might already exist. But you can't overcome the exception through legal argument as the Palestinian case has shown, you can only overcome that exception through actually challenging the geopolitical structure that's sustaining this idea that this is in fact an exceptional fact pattern. and the palestinians come closest to doing that first in their great revolts what i would call their first intifada between 1936 and 1939 when they wage an all out boycott of goods and british taxes and then an armed revolt against the british which the british now have to establish new exceptional law and martial law in order to squash the rebellion but in 1939 as a result of their efforts Britain reversed its Zionist policy when it issued the white paper and said that it was wrong and would limit Im- Jewish immigration and would actually limit land sales. And that becomes instructive because we see when Palestinians do that throughout this course of history that is when they come closest to unsettling the exception. The exceptional fact pattern that sustains their ex- exclusion. So, I organized the book across a century long arc. in order to bear out this proposition that i'm making and i or i choose each i i use there's five chapters which all each represent five junctures each juncture represents a particular moment in which some sort of recalibration of balance of power often beset by a uh, violent confrontation makes it up for grabs to redefine what the law means 1917 is the first juncture 
which is the end of the uh, first world war. And the first chapter is actually a 50-year background chapter. The rest of the book is the next 50 years. But the first chapter is, are those 50 years. And in those first 50 years, between 1917 and 1966, not only do we see how this colonial erasure is established, how the sui generis mandate is established, uh, how Palestinians come to you know, their first revolt, but we also see how Israel adopts um, almost verbatim British martial law in order to control the lives of its Palestinian citizens of Israel who don't flee after the establishment of the state in 1948. So those citizens become regulated by a permanent state of exception, a racialized regime, that even though they are citizens of the state of Israel, remain outside, are only included in order to be excluded as a matter of practice. Those 50 years are incredibly instructive because all the tropes, the, the mythologies, the arguments that we continue to have today are all born out in those first five decades. The next juncture is the 1967 war. And there where I show is that for us, the common way that we understand Israel's occupation of the West Bank and Gaza is to understand that somehow they're getting away with it, right? They are violating, you know, Article 49, Subsection 6 of the Fourth Geneva Convention, which prohibits the, the, the settlement of, of an occupying power, civilian population, into territory it occupies. It's a little bit sad that I've memorized these things. Um, but I have, and I dream about them, unfortunately. Um, I also dream about freedom a lot. But what I, do, what I do in this chapter is to complicate that story altogether. It's not that Israel is, is establishing settlements in the West Bank to this day um, because it's getting away with the law, but for the law, it could not have done so. And I demonstrate how. What was Israel's legal, the legal work of its judiciary, of its lawyers, of its ambassadors, of its political leaders, how did that meld with what the United States was doing in its own, um, the height of the U.S.'s Cold War with the uh, USSR in East Asia, but also in the Middle East and beyond? And how do those things culminate to establish a legal framework that basically allow Israel to make an argument that its settlements are not illegal and that the territory isn't occupied, but it's disputed? And so what Janine was talking about that argument that the settlements aren't in violation of international law, that's an Israeli legal argument being adopted full stop by the United States in 2019, but which has been facilitated since 1967 by every U.S. administration from Lyndon B. Johnson in 1967 to Barack Obama up until 2016. The third chapter begins in 1973, the 1973 war, when we see, also known as the Yom Kippur War, where we see Egypt and Syria launch a surprise attack against Israel and come very close to winning the battle to recoup the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights, occupied in 1967, but ultimately lose the war. More significantly, we understand in this moment that Egypt and Syria will not wage a comprehensive war of liberation on behalf of Palestinians or Arabs against Israel. They will negotiate for their lands back. And this changes everything. 
It's the period where the Palestinian militia groups now take over the PLO in 1968 and enter the United Nations to wage a full frontal battle against this imperial domination. But at the same time, within the PLO, this high point story, this is what I thought was going to be the apex of the Palestinian story, but even this high point story is riddled with uh, complications and complexities. Within the PLO, there's a split between the pragmatist front and the rejectionist front. The pragmatist front believes that they should establish a interim, uh, a state, a Palestinian state in the West Bank in Gaza as an interim solution or a final solution. And the rejectionists are rejecting any, any solution short of all-out revolution for liberation. That is not settled. That debate within the PLO is not settled until... 1988, and hence begins my fourth juncture, which begins with the Palestinian Intifada, uh, what we, the Palestinian uprising that begins in 1987. This is when Hamas is established. This is when we see the PLO diminish significantly uh, politically. It's displaced from its base in, in, in Lebanon to Tunis. Now it can't fight in any cross-border raids. It loses a base of 300 to 400,000 Palestinian refugees in Lebanon who constituted what some would argue is a parastate, Palestinian parastate. It is significantly weakened because Arafat had supported Saddam Hussein um, in the Iraqi occupation of Kuwait and the rise of Hamas and the rise of alternative organic leaders within the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. All of these different things help to explain Oslo, the Oslo Accords. What some would call a peace process, what I would call basically Israel's consolidation of all of its territorial takings with Palestinian acquiescence. I began that chapter wanting to understand, wanting to explain to, to, explain to a lay audience what, what is so bad about Oslo, right? Let me just read it for people and explain how it disproportionately distributed water, how it didn't, you know, it, 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 it limited movement. It basically established Israel's, entrenched Israel's um, upper hand. But when I read the documents closely, I realized you don't have to be a lawyer to understand how bad this agreement is. You just have to be literate. So then I set out to answer the other questions of why would the PLO enter into this and how did Israel successfully achieve it and what becomes the Oslo peace process um, to solidify a permanent occupation that culminates into the present. In the final juncture, um, final chapter, it begins in 2000 which is the second Palestinian Intifada where I began the story telling you where I was as an activist. And in that story, it was the beginning of the second Palestinian Intifada in 2000, where Israel inaugurates its most significant legal shift, which is to change its relationship to Palestinians from one of occupation to one of all-out warfare. And it does so in the language of law, and it does so by creating new categories that never existed, again, sui generis frameworks. So... I'll tell you a little bit about that, just so you get a taste of it. Um, 
they describe the, the, the confrontation with Palestinians who are now lightly armed as a result of Oslo, because now you have security forces who are lightly armed and trained by the United States in order to use those arms against other Palestinians to protect the settlers, to prove Palestinian eligibility for self-rule. In the course of the Second Intifada, Israel inaugurates and takes credit for assassinations. They are now assassinating Palestinian political and military leaders in the territories. And unlike the past, where they had denied that they were you know, conducting assassinations, now they were taking full responsibility for them and saying that they are, face, they are in a very unique warfare against terrorists and no law applies. This is a sui generis framework. Except there was law that applied from 1977. It's either an international armed conflict or a non-international armed conflict. You're either fighting a civil war or you're fighting against guerrillas um, who, are, who are nascent sovereigns. But Israel says no, neither of those apply because they never signed them in 1977, neither did the United States. Instead, they say, this is an armed conflict short of war. They create an entirely new category to describe it as an armed conflict short of war. Because had they said, it was occupation, the force that they would have to use would be limited to law enforcement. And they wanted to use lethal force. Law enforcement, you're supposed to use lethal force as a final measure. But if you say war, you have to acknowledge that you're facing off with a belligerent. And Israel didn't want to recognize Palestinians as a juridical people, even in, in 2000, seven years after, a failed, uh, after the inauguration of the Oslo peace process. And so they create the new category of armed conflict short of war. And from that, those seeds that they plant, and, and what was once called assassinations, you guys might be familiar with this, extrajudicial assassinations are today targeted killings. And so they export, not only are they creating new laws of war, but they're also exporting it to the rest of the world. Again, demonstrating the global relevance of the question of Palestine, not just to Palestinians, but for all of us. That, what I do in that chapter is basically trace how those seeds planted in 2000 come to full and lethal bloom in the wars against Gaza between 2008 and 2014 and to the present, so that when 2,200 Palestinians are killed in the course of 51 days in 2014, including some 534 children and no one is held to account, It's not that Israel got away with it. It's that Israel has shrunk who counts as a Palestinian civilian and expanded its right to use lethal force within the language of law and is making a proposition to the rest of the world of how warfare should now be conducted here on out. That's where the book ends. But I am... um, (laughs) That's kind of dismal. Um, But obviously, I I told you this, I... um, as much of a realist as I am, I am at heart an activist. And that means that my optimism is, is immovable. I believe that another world is possible. I believe that we can be better. I believe that there are other possibilities for the future. There are alternative futures that we have not explored and not yet built. And so in the last, in the concluding chapter of the book, in the conclusion, 
I summarize the whole legal argument throughout the book. I'm dealing with legal literature, political science, international relations, critical legal theory, but I'm also grappling with um, indigenous, um, the works of indigenous scholars, of black feminists, of the black radical tradition, um, queer theory, and, and those things don't necessarily go together. I call one my freedom literature and the other one the realist literature. And by the end of the book, I think specifically the last 2,500 words, I move away from the law and look to the future forward in its eyes. And I draw on Afrofuturism to offer possible ways forward. Because by the end of the book, the, things, the really sad thing is that the possible political solutions have already been available to us since 1947. We knew the UN Special Committee on Palestine in 1940, November 1947 gave us three possibilities. They said a federal Palestinian state with strong protections for the Jewish minority. They said a binational state for the Jewish and Arab peoples. They said uh, two states, one for Jews and one for Arabs. The, the non-mention of Palestinians is not a mistake, by the way. The reference is Arabs. But we've known those three political possibilities since 1947. So it was a little depressing to end the book by reiterating what we've already had available to us and yet not been able to enforce. And so that's why I look to Afrofuturism to think about not what is possible, but what is necessary. And how we can invert the things that we know in order to create new exits that we hadn't imagined before. So we do not feel trapped by the present. And so to do that, I offer a few things. One is I ask Palestinians to conceive of the right of return and the return of refugees to their homelands, not as the culmination of our freedom struggle, but as the beginning of it. Because there is no return to 1947. There is no return to the past. There are only optimal futures to make. We not only have to think what we, how we organize ourselves in that future when we return in 2020 and 2021 and 2025, but we also have to be able to offer Jewish Israelis a better future than Israel has offered them thus far. The Thank you. The other thing that I do, and you know, the question um, obviously is, well, how do you do that? What is that future? Um, the other thing that I do, I don't know. If I knew the answer to that question, by the way, I wouldn't be in the academy. I'd probably be doing something else. But because I'm exploring these questions, I remain here, which I find very fulfilling. Um, but one of the ways that I think about answering this question is to think about what happens when we stop thinking about the question of Palestine as an indigenous movement against settler colonialism, right? With, that's inflected with racial dynamics but instead begin to think about it as a racial justice struggle. How then does that unsettle native settler binaries that complicates relationships across lines between uh, Jewish Israelis and Palestinians? And what does the history of Middle Eastern Jews who were, who, who were persecuted and continue to be persecuted within Israel because Israel and its establishment was very much committed to establishing Israel and establishing the new Jew as a new white Jew. It was very much a project of earning acceptance within Europe. That's why Israel um, doesn't, doesn't conceive itself as being part of the Middle East, but instead wants to distinguish itself from everything of the Middle East. 
more civilized, more cultured, better. They can actually teach. Their, their violence is legitimate. And so what happens when we trace that history and try to think about a future for Middle Eastern Jews that would help us to unsettle this native settler binary and think about possible ways forward? So I ask these questions. I ask a lot of other questions. You're going to have to read the book. But I will, um, I, will, I will read for you just one passage where I grapple with this a little bit. Zionist, this is from the conclusion. Zionist opposition to Palestinian return and belonging is predicated on a zero-sum view. Israel is if Palestinians are not. Palestinians are not if Israel is. Perhaps instead of asking what it will take to overcome Zionist opposition to Palestinian belonging, we should ask what possibilities does the return of Palestinians and the recognition of their belonging create? Palestinian refugees exiled now for seven decades will return to a memory. In the case of several generations, they will return to their grandparents' memory. The journey will, by definition, be a project of building something new. Returning to Palestine will be literally going back to an unknown future. The overwhelming majority of Palestinians have not demanded Jewish-Israeli removal in that future, only a relinquishment of their desire to rule. Decolonization demands that the settler reimagine himself or herself in this environment. If, as Zionists insist, their settlement in Palestine is a return to that land rather than a conquest of it, then they must acknowledge the Palestinians on that land, on their terms, and in their context. Zionists, however, once on that land, have sought to establish a Jewish homeland that is exogenous to the Middle East and closer to, if not an extension, of Europe. Rather than embrace everything indigenous to the Middle East, from language to livelihood and peoples, Zionism rejected them. Israel established itself as the site of ingathering for the Jewish diaspora, a purpose perpetually driving its removal of Palestinian natives. Gabriel Ash, an Israeli-American analyst, points out that the Jewish nationalist population, because of its commitment to colonial domination, suffers from a congenital inability to belong to the land it claims as its homeland. He states that an Israeliness that is at home in the Middle East must be mediated by Palestinians who were always already home. What possibilities become available when Jewish Israelis are made part of the land and the rest of the Middle East, rather than forming a satellite state merely located in the Middle East? Thank you. That concludes the reading for this event. Up next is the conversation. Well, you can, you can get from that that the book, while it's dense, is understandable, you know? It really is written, I feel, for someone who, who, who wants to know, you know, how things can be in this situation, who want to make sense of that headline. So you obviously know a tremendous amount, but I want to say, you can read this book, you know? It's, it, uh, it's dense, but it's very readable. I want to say that. Thank you. Okay, I have a few questions. Um, I wanted to ask you first, we, we see domestic law being forged. I think we can kind of see that that is made by human beings. We see the fingerprints on mm -hmm. that. We know that slavery was legal. We know that the Supreme Court made George W. Bush president. You know, we, with mm. domestic law, it's a little more close up. 
and we can think of it as a forged thing. But I think for most of us, international law is more opaque. We sort of lazily imagine that it's kind of like U.S. law writ larger or that somehow all the countries mm. got together and decided how it would work. What should we know about the origins and the, the scope, if you will, of international law? Sure. That's a great question. There is actually a definition for international law in the International Court of Justice statute, um, <laughs> Article 38. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like I'm not going to tell you the subsection. Let me keep it moving. Um, but there it's defined as deriv- uh, derived of two thing- three things. One is um, treaties which are basically a form of explicit consent between uh, two or more states, usually multilateral treaties are what we come to understand as international law. They are international contracts that all states sign onto um, and which they, you know, are subject to as a matter of their explicit consent. There's also something known as customary law, which is implicit consent, which is comprised of what states do um, in practice and what states believe is legal, opinion o juris. And so those two things don't have to ever be written anywhere, but can crystallize as a matter of practice in what states do over time. And the third place, the third source is general principles, which are basically gap fillers. I start in, in, the, in the present to go back to the past, which is that this is the way that we understand international law now. Um, which is basically a state-centric order that has you know, steadily begun to acknowledge other rights-bearing agents like organizations and individuals. But the origins of international law is actually an imperial trading and the desire to navigate who owns which sea routes. And so it, begin, it begins as an bi- international business venture um, and, 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 and comes to be crystallized as basically... Uh, imperial law, imperial law, and its first articulation, it was used to justify the slaughter of indigenous peoples um, in the Americas through the language of law, first by acknowledging that just because they don't believe in Christ doesn't mean that they're outside of uh, the scope of law, that, that, that they're not outside of the scope, they will be recognized because they practice their own form of faith, but that because they are not adhering to uh, European law or imperial law, that they, because they don't recognize it, they don't have to be regulated by it either. I mean, talk about a pretzel. Um, but that's the origin of it. That's the origin of it. And, it has, and, and so we see, and, and that basically justifies the slaughter of, of indigenous peoples in the language of law rather than all-out force. And subsequently... Subsequently, as states have increased, the number of states have increased, they've been included into this order, right? So they've had to accept what came before them. I describe this in the book as, you know, the sordid origins of international law, um, but it's, it's one that constitutes the form that we can overcome in the ways that I describe. The only thing that I will say is that what I, I think a lot, I, you know, I just think it's worthwhile to mention is that we didn't have states until something like 200 years ago. This is a new concept. And so this is, that's why I call it imperial, you know, law. And then as the number of states increase, their participation in this international uh, legal system changes the law, but also subjects subjects them to these um, sordid origins. Thank you. Okay, so the New York Times last May 
said that Donald Trump's moving the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, quote, swept aside 70 years of American neutrality. <laughs> well, okay, so the it, audience can answer this exactly. one. Exactly. <laughs> um, obviously, the U.S. gives Israel billions of dollars, shields it from censure in the U.N. Could Israel do what it does without U.S. backing? And in particular, how important is U.S. acceptance or promulgation of these legal fictions that you talk about? Yeah, no doubt. So um, the, the short answer is no. Mm-hmm. That Israel has been able to achieve what it has through some imperial tutelage, first under the British and then the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what it, what it does is, is it could not do on its own. And even if the U.S. fades, they might have other allies, so also not to exceptionalize the U.S. in this framework, right? Or to exceptionalize Israel. Um, but the U.S. was a neutral power up until 1967, it was what the Palestinians preferred as having the mandatory power over the British. British. They saw them as neutral. Uh, the U.S. Um, did vote to recognize Israel's membership at the United Nations in 1948, but wasn't necessarily a primary ally. We don't see the shift that comes to define our present until the 1967 war. And the reason that we see it then, under the Lyndon B. Johnson administration, is because Israel achieves in six days what is seen as a miraculous victory against several Arab armies in the span of six days. And the U.S. sees now in Israel a significant Cold War ally in the Middle East. So whereas before, the U.S. had adhered to a stalemate policy of basically uh, maintaining no peace, no war between, you know, um, uh, friendly Arab monarchies and Israel, after 1967, the U.S. says, well, we don't need to do that. The U.S., the Israel should be our primary ally. And they inaugurate, the Johnson administration inaugurates two policies that continue to define U.S. policy. One is maintaining Israel's qualitative military edge, which means that they sustain military funding to Israel so that Israel can defeat any single Middle Eastern army on its own or all of them put together. Okay? That's why there will never be sanctions according to the U.S., U.S. will never sanction Israel for this reason. They do not want to diminish its qualitative military edge. It's also why they're hush-hush about Israel's nuclear program, right. which is not subject to a proliferation you know, treaty, and they maintain a secret. The second policy that they inaugurated was even more consequential, I think, which is the land, well, not more, but as consequential, which is um, the land for peace framework that's enshrined in U.N. Security Council Resolution 242, that basically establishes that Israel will retain the territories it occupied in 1967 as consideration for a contractual agreement to be returned and exchanged with the Arabs for a permanent peace. So they get to keep what wasn't theirs in order to achieve permanent peace to establish Israel's, um, normalizing Israel's status in the Middle East forever. Right? And Egypt and Jordan, by the way, vote for this right. um, in the Security Council, which is you know, what causes some fracture amongst the Palestinians. Let me not go down that road. Um, let me stop here to say that this land for peace framework is significant because it is precisely this logic of achieving a political outcome that is not restricted by any international norms or principles which has moved the U.S. to define international law as counterproductive 
to a resolution, which is why they have, in the UN Security Council, issued 40, I think it's now 45 vetoes in the Security Council to prohibit any international resolution to this, to, to the Palestinian question. And the last veto was the Obama administration. When it used its first veto in office in order to block a resolution condemning settlements using language that was lifted from US foreign policy on settlements. So, since 1967, the U.S. has spoken out of both sides of its mouth, on the one hand telling us that the settlements are illegal and counterproductive to peace. On the other hand, they've provided the military, finan you know, financial, and diplomatic support that have enabled Israel to continue to do what it does. So changing the facts on the ground while maintaining a, a legal conversation that's sort of separate, you know, almost like it's, it's somewhere else. Well, let's talk, I, you talk about the U.S. resisting the internationalization mm -hmm. of this question. Yeah. You could talk a little bit about that and then also, so then where does, where do international organizations, where does the U.N., where does the International Criminal Court, what about these international organizations that might seem like a site for this to it be? It might seem like a site. That might seem like it a site. It might seem like it. Um, I don't want to be too cynical, so I'll answer the question, and then I'll give you the optimist. Um, Good. <laughs> it's fun. for that. So do you all know, I think it was in 2015, the Palestinian delegation with its allies successfully lobbied the Human Rights Council um, of, you know, the Human Rights Council, basically all they got them to do against formidable U.S. Um, opposition what they got them to do was to pass a resolution that says they were going to publish a list of all businesses that were operating in the settlements. Okay? That's it. They weren't going to call for boycott. They weren't going to sanction them. All they had to do was to publish a list of all the businesses operating in the settlements. It has not been published. And, the re and here's the Human Rights Council that voted for it favorably, and yet the High Commissioner for Human Rights, the previous one and now the current one, have both abstained from passing that resolution. We don't know the reasons why. I can conjecture they probably are thinking about their next career move, and they don't want to destroy it, which is the same reason at the International Criminal Court we're probably not going to see Fatima Bensouda actually bring any claims against Israel. It's going to be a lose-lose situation. Now, that being said, that does not mean that advocacy at the UN is for naught. Mm -hmm. To the contrary, I think that what that create, all of those efforts create learning moments. They create opportunities for us to create new um, alliances. They create opportunities for us to build mass mobilization. They create opportunities for us to create new language and new realities on the ground. Because this legal language is consequential at least in the way that states internalize them, even in their internal foreign policy making, even if the law does not have the capacity to command state behavior or to punish transgressions. Okay. Uh, Greg Shupak, writing for FAIR, uh, was looking into the way that U.S. corporate media talk about the future um, in Israel and Palestine, and was finding things like this. Uh, the New York Times had an editorial in May of 2018 
about Israel's mass murder of 62 unarmed Palestinians on May 14th. And the paper criticized successive right-wing Israeli governments for expanding Jewish settlements in the West Bank on land Palestinians expected to be part of any Palestinian state, as well as blaming Trump for failing to urge a peace formula in which Palestinians and Israelis would negotiate core issues, such as establishing boundaries between the two states. The Independent said that Trump's moving the embassy has killed stone dead any remaining hopes of peace and a two-state solution between Israel and the Palestinians. So we see in media an equation of peace and a two-state solution, mm. you know, and a, a, a burying, Shupak mm-hmm. was saying, of the, the very idea of, a one, of one state. You know, it's not, it's not on the table. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's not an option. The Wall Street Journal had it, it's the Wall Street Journal, it had an opinion piece that said that partition is the only real alternative to a Yugoslavia-like single state in which two rival peoples devour each other. So the idea of there being a single state in which everyone is a citizen and enjoys human rights and votes is, is, not, is not there, and yet when you talk to people, they say a two-state solution is, is dead. You mm-hmm. know? It's, it's, it's not viable. Yeah. It's not something that's going to happen. And yet, it still is lifted up in the media as the only possible thing, but now Trump's ruined it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, let's see someone resurrect it. Um, there's a lot of ways to answer this and to respond to it. So let me try to, let me try to go through it. Mm-hmm. One is to say that when we say two-state solution, we're really just saying Palestinian state. Yeah. Because, yeah, we don't use that language, and I think we should, right? Because when we say two states, we're establishing a false parity that doesn't exist. Israel has been a state since 1948. Palestinians have recognized it in 1988 and again in 1993. And so Israel is not in question. There is no existential crisis of, 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 of Israel as a state. The only state that doesn't exist is the Palestinian state. And I think even reversing that language and talking about it as such will shift the way that we have these conversations so that, for example, when I do media interviews after, right, after Trump announcement of the moving of the embassy of Jerusalem, I don't get the question of why won't Palestinians negotiate? Because if you've understood that Israel has torpedoed the one sure way of enshrining Jewish sovereignty by establishing the Palestinian state and has torpedoed that option nonetheless, there's a lot to talk about. That it actually has built a wall, 85% of its length runs through the West Bank and confiscates 13% of Palestinian lands. That it has increased the number of settlers from 200,000 in 1993 to 600,000, I think 700,000 even, today. The fact that it no longer recognizes that East Jerusalem will be a capital of Palestine, the fact that it wants to annex 60% of the West Bank outright, the fact that they're repeating this mantra that there is no such thing as a Palestinian people and now trying to set the Gaza Strip apart on its own to create their own statelet, that was Israel. It is the only power there that is able to control the facts on the ground. Palestinians can't control, change those facts on the ground. I read this today, Ra'af Izraik writes in a 2016 article that Israel 
has equal control over a Palestinian day laborer and of the Palestinian president. Mahmoud Abbas can't travel without Israeli um, permission, right? So that's, that's the first thing that we really should talk about. This is not the two-state solution. This is the Palestinian state, which would get us to ask Israel the question, what, why have you rejected it and created this new course? And that's, that's an interesting inquiry. The second thing is that Oslo, if we're really honest about the peace process, Oslo sets up a sovereignty trap that Palestinians can't escape. It's basically an autonomy framework. And it's, I keep saying verbatim, history keeps repeating itself. It's the time collapse. We are in the past and the future. Um, so, um, but literally, in 1978, when Egypt and Israel were negotiating the um, Camp David Accord that comes to fruition in 1979, they establish a Middle East peace framework that says that there should be a peace process that begins with an interim, you know, interim solution and then culminates in two years of final or, or two years of an interim solution and then enters into final status negotiations. Yeah. Exactly. In 1993, that's exactly what's adopted with minor differences um, that I won't get into. But why is that important? Because Oslo nowhere ever promises that the outcome will be a Palestinian state. It is not a peace process for a state. It is an autonomy framework. It is permanent, permanent autonomy where Palestinians will exist as derivative sovereigns of the Israeli state in what will amount to Bantustans or reservations. So when we talk about, let's go back to Oslo, we're basically saying, let's, let's take Palestinians back into their sovereignty trap, where in order to prove eligibility for self-rule, they have to pursue a politics of acquiescence uh, to prove that they're good Arabs to the U.S. and Israel, except they'll never get the state in return. It's a losing bet. It's a losing bet where now um, we're um, indentured, um, which is why I, I suggest that we move beyond that in order to think about how do we get out of the sovereignty trap and ways forward. And the only thing I'll caution is that even as we talk about the one-state solution, that we should even complicate equality mm -hmm. and citizenship as a model, because as we've seen here in the United States, where indigenous people yeah. uh, were enfranchised and black people were later enfranchised, Citizenship doesn't mean That's equality. And you can it can become a trap for domination. If we don't reconfigure what we think of that, Grace Lee Boggs said you know, this, and, and this is how, why I draw from this, because I, I want equality, but I don't want my equality to be defined by Israelis. I don't want my freedom to def be defined by what Israelis have and I can have as much. I want to define my own freedom. That's a different kind of equality. It's an equality to live and to thrive. And Grace Lee Boggs says something very similar um, when she says that this isn't about black people becoming equal to whites. It's about black people becoming equal to the vision of, they have of themselves. And so just to complicate that a little bit. That's wonderful. Well, we don't, we don't have much more time, but I wanted to, to say you have made the point that this is not about Donald Trump. This is U.S. policy. <laughs> this is not about Netanyahu or the Israeli right. The policies that we're talking about, as you outline, have been essentially policy for, for decades. Yeah. But then, um, you know, Phyllis Bennis said 
that people do Trump's blatant, Netanyahu and Trump's blatant um, celebration, you know, of the occupation and of these sets of policies draws criticism and that maybe makes an opening, you know, yep. for, for building a movement. And I wanted to, 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 to end this conversation with that forward-looking thing, with that wind, you know, right. idea of, you talk about a rights-based alternative, you know, part, part of I feel that activists are often taunted, you know, well, what's your solution? You know, <laughs> show me the map, you know, show me exactly blueprint. what you're going to do. The blueprint, with there you five, go. Ten years there you plan. go. Yeah. And we're kind of cowed by it. But we're allowed to just say no. We're allowed to say we're opposed to something because it's wrong and to make our, our road by walking, yeah. right? And so I, I wanted to just say, do, do you see, I, you know, I'm talking with Josh Rubner, um, who used to be at... Um, the Committee for Palestinian Rights, and he was saying, talking about BDS and saying he sees it flowering. You know, we've got college campuses. Brown University yesterday. Brown University yesterday. Church denominations representing tens of millions of people. I want to say, first of all, Josh Rubner did want to say that uh, we should not reduce the movement for Palestinian freedom to BDS. BDS is a tool, a set of tools that is part of a bigger picture. But he said he thinks it's becoming a mainstream idea, that something is different. And so I just wanted to ask you finally, first of all, do you think the response to this would have been different five years ago, you know, (laughs) even three years ago? But then also, if you could just talk a little bit about how we how we start growing or is yeah. it, it exists i don't want to say there's nothing already yeah. but how how do we how do we think about this going forward how do we use the outrage that we feel to to start moving us forward towards palestinian real freedom janine you're great i really really enjoy this yes yes <laughs> Multi-layered question taking us through. I started, I started, you know, going somewhere, and, I was like, oh, <laughs> and then it you. winds up not really. Thank you for having us dream a little bit. No, yeah. really. Let me start. Yeah, I, I think there is so much comfort in our disdain for Trump that we use, I think, to absolve ourselves of responsibility for decades of, you know, malfeasance. Yeah. Um, not just towards the question of Palestine and to, towards Palestinians, but of, of, of everything that we know at home. I mean, the fact that six children have died at the border as they were separated from their families, right, makes us really outraged, as it should be, and they're held in detention. But it was the Obama administration that inaugurated that and built many of those detention centers, right? So it's that kind of... You know, that kind of work that makes it, you know, it was Obama, the first black president that was in office during the height of the Black Lives Matter movement and yet could not move forward a program towards abolition or forget, fine, if that's too much, at least, you know, to address mass incarceration. Right. So there's a way that we use Trump in order to absolve ourselves of that responsibility. And the same is happening right now. The differences in unfairness to you know, most audiences who don't follow this closely is that Trump has been so explicit. He has removed the emperor's clothes. Right. And so now, if you, if you continue to participate in the rhetoric, you are explicitly part of the problem. 
because you're in, in, you're in knowing denial. Yeah. So that's where you know, this is actually really helpful. It's also really helpful for people who don't understand what ethno-nationalism is, what you know, supremacy looks like, what militarized supremacy looks like um, abroad. When they see it here in the United States, it becomes more legible. So that we can understand an alliance between Trump and Netanyahu as signifying something very particular that makes this legible to us. Um, So I think that, yes, this is a great opportunity. It's been a great opportunity to basically, uh, for movement work, to usher in uh, the squad into Congress, which I think has been a movement victory. It's not a, right? It's a movement victory to pave that path of, of, of defining what's possible. And here is where the future is. You asked me about how this book would have been received. This book, I think, is, is, being, is, is entering the conversation now. I mean, another book about Palestine in 2019 after 102 years, that was definitely an anxiety I had. <laughs> um, but, you know, the fact that it's been received in the way that it has, I think, is also because of movement. Yep. It's because of movement. It's because of, you know, I start writing the book at a time when we have accepted that settler colonialism is distinct from colonialism as an enterprise and how that functions and what it means. So that now when I discuss Israel, I'm definitely not exceptionalizing it. I'm comparing Israel to Canada and the United States and New Zealand and Australia, right? And West Papua and, you know, so on and so forth that I'm not exceptionalizing it. I'm placing it within this broader framework that we can understand. The Black Lives Matter movement has made very clear to us that political sovereignty and political enfranchisement is not the horizon for freedom. And so how else can we imagine futures? And so that's, I think, what has made, you know, my book is in conversation with those movements Mm -hmm. and with those literatures. Um, And so I think that's what's made it, uh, for me, I'm entering into something where where I want to insist that the question of Palestine is not about something over there, but it's about something that we're living over here. It brings into sharp relief U.S. imperialism which we don't talk about in, that, in using that language much anymore since you know, the early ni- 90s when the U.S. emerges as you know, the singular power in a unipolar world. So we no longer have that language to discuss it, but it brings into sharp relief. Why is the United States interested in the Middle East? Why, why is it, it so invested in Israel? Why does it create alliances with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia and with Sisi's Egypt, right? Why is it invested in Iraq in the way that it is and it continues to be there and mum on, on the question of Yemen? Why then, if we go from there, if we're thinking about that, then why is it continue, uh, uh, continuing to occupy Hawaii? How is that a site of the great, you know, uh, the, one of the largest military commands, the Pacific Command, which oversees 50% of the world's population in 36 states. I mean, right, the question of Palestine is drawing us in to think about the U.S. outside of the U.S. because it's never just been an American exceptionalism. And so when, I, when people ask me, well, what should we do? How do we get people to understand Palestine? 
because it feels so far away, I say, talk about Standing Rock, right? Talk about, you know, invite Nick Estes to tell you about that, um, that struggle um, and many of our other compas to talk about settler colonialism ongoing. How is it that the building the border on the Mexico-US um, border, not just about immigrant rights, but also about the autumn nation who are being severed from their peoples across this militarized border now. Talk about um, mass incarceration in the United States and racial capitalism. Talk about things here to bring what we know and should know better to bring into sharper relief uh, the question of Palestine and our futures, which are, for better or for worse, entwined. It's all of us or none of us. So that, that's it. Thank you. You've been listening to a Lannan podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts at podcast.lannan.org. In addition, the Lannan Audio Archives present similar programs by national and international writers, poets, and social activists at www.lannan.org. Listen to hundreds of hours of recorded programs from the likes of Seamus Haney, Joy Harjo, Eduardo Galliano, Arundhati Roy, Jim Harrison, Edwidge Danticott, and Noam Chomsky. New programs are added every month to both the podcasts and the audio archives.